It's Friday, October 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Vice President Mike Pence announced that Turkey will pause its military operation in Syria for five days to allow for the Kurds to withdraw from that area. While President Trump called it a victory, critics still say that Turkey got everything they wanted and the whole ordeal has diminished the standing of the U.S. Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor, joins us for the ceasefire. Next, the world's longest flight is leaving New York Friday and arriving in Sydney during its Sunday morning. It will be providing fresh insight into the physical and emotional toll these long-haul flights have on the crew and passengers. Angus Whitley, reporter for Bloomberg News and one of the passengers who will be on this long-haul flight, joins us for what to expect from this 20-hour ride. Finally, an entire marketplace has sprung up online where people put Cheetos that look like things up for sale, sometimes for hundreds and thousands of dollars. After the Harambe Cheetos sold for $100,000, people have been trying endlessly to make money off these cheesy puffs. Tova Danovich journalist and contributor to TheOutline.com, joins us for the collectible Cheetos market. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The United States and Turkey have agreed to a ceasefire in Syria. The Turkish side will pause Operation Peace Spring in order to allow for the withdrawal of YPG forces from the safe zone for 120 hours. Joining us now is Dave Lawler, World News Editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Great to be with you. Vice President Mike Pence has announced from Turkey that they have agreed to a ceasefire in their military operations in northern Syria for 120 hours so that Kurdish forces can withdraw from that area. Although Turkey, for their part, said this is not a ceasefire, it's just a pause in operation. Dave, tell us what's going on right now with the latest. So essentially what Pence is saying is that this Turkish offensive is over. With U.S. overseeing an operation, the Kurdish forces along the border between Syria and Turkey will pull back. The Turks will stop their offensive. And essentially you will have this buffer zone that Turkey's been calling for created along the border with U.S. help. So essentially it's Turkey getting what they've demanded from the beginning, which is this 30 kilometer zone along the border. But it's the Kurds, instead of fighting Turkey for that land, pulling back. Now, we haven't seen a statement from them that they're embracing this deal. And so I wouldn't say it's a done deal yet, but that's the basics of what Pence laid out today from Turkey. Turkey from the beginning said that they are not going to negotiate with any Kurdish forces. They view them as a terrorist force. So this was a deal straight up between Turkey and the vice president, right? Exactly. And Turkey has gotten what they've asked for from the beginning, basically, which is they said, we have these Kurdish forces along our border. We consider them to be elements of a terrorist group. And this is a security problem for us. The U.S. said, don't invade. They invaded. Now the U.S. is intervening to try and negotiate a ceasefire, essentially on Turkey's terms, saying Turkey will get what they demanded from the beginning if they don't continue to push this offensive further into Syria. The president spoke to reporters and he said this is a great victory, it's a great day for civilization. Can we call this a victory? As you've been saying, even Turkey is getting everything they want. I guess we're getting what we want because the president wants to get out of the area. But is this a victory of any sort? Right. So President Trump has been seeing for a week now headlines that say Turkey is killing a U.S. ally, the Kurds. 
ISIS prisoners are in danger of being released and getting on the loose. And this is an offensive by Turkey that by de facto strengthens U.S. adversaries in Russia, Syria, and Iran, right? So he's been seeing a lot of bad headlines around this Turkish offensive. He's saying, look, we're going to end the offensive now. It's a victory because the killing will stop. It's not a victory in the sense that, as you say, Turkey got everything they wanted. The U.S. is still off the playing field. Now, maybe Trump views that as a victory. We're not in the way in Syria anymore. But obviously, the more conventional way to stop this fighting from happening would be to have kept the U.S. presence in Syria anyways that was preventing this Turkish offensive in the first place. Right. I mean, this all goes back to that. The president and the Pentagon said, hey, we never gave a green light for Turkey to begin this offensive. But really, when the president pulled those troops out of there, the only kind of stabilizing force there that was the green light. And I don't know what the conversation was between the president and Erdogan was when they talked on the phone, but them pulling out the troops really was that green light, whether they like to think so or not. Exactly. And actually, my colleagues at Axios have done some reporting on that phone call where essentially, according to our reporting, Trump said to Erdogan, if you do this, if you send troops in, you will be responsible for whatever happens next. You'll be responsible for the global outcry that will come. You'll be responsible for ISIS in the area. This is on you if we pull out. And Erdogan said, fine, basically. So, you know, this is something he's been threatening to do for a long time. The only thing that was preventing him from doing it was, as you say, the presence of U.S. troops along the border. The U.S. pulled out. Now, Trump seems to be arguing that Turkey was going to do this anyways even if the U.S. troops were there, and so better to get them out of harm's way. I don't think anybody really believes that was the case. As, right. as we saw over the last two years, the fact that U.S. troops were there, Turkey did not want to directly take on U.S. troops along the border. That would be a disaster for them. And so really, as you say, pulling the troops out was what kicked this off. And now Trump is saying, I'm the one to end it today. We'll see if that's the case. Reports say that Erdogan told reporters that he can't keep up with all the different messages coming from the president. He says, when we look at his Twitter posts, we can no longer follow them. We can't keep track. We also heard that on the day that the Turkish offensive started, President Trump sent Erdogan a letter saying, hey, don't be a fool. The world is going to look at you like a devil. It was a very surreal letter. And at the end, he says, hey, I'll call you later. But what do we make of the position that Turkey is in with kind of this mixed messaging? So there's a lot going on there. Obviously, U.S. policy for the last 10 months or so has been that we were going to work with Turkey to help ease their security concerns along the border. So that was the working level conversations, not between Trump and Erdogan, but at the lower level between envoys, between diplomats, between the militaries. This was something that seemed to be working and it was a plan that was in place. Then Erdogan gets on the phone with Trump himself. And he's basically able to change U.S. policy over the course of that conversation. Trump then apparently realizes that there's going to be significant blowback on his end. He sends the letter to Erdogan threatening that there will be repercussions for taking this step that I think it was quite clear to Trump was going to happen in the first place. And then you have the U.S. Congress now saying, we don't really care about this ceasefire. We're still going to push ahead with sanctions. So there are a lot of messages coming from Washington. Erdogan is partially to blame for that because he skipped right to to the top in you know negotiating directly with Trump. He knew that there wasn't widespread support for this across the U.S. government, but he knew he could get Trump to play ball, essentially. You have one message coming from Turkey, more or less, from Erdogan, and you have several messages coming from Washington. I'm not surprised that he's a little bit confused. Dave Lawler, World News Editor at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
next month we'll do a London to Sydney on the 787, a two-engine aircraft with 50 passengers on board. Still not a full payload, but we think in 2023 one of these new aircraft types will be able to do it with the full commercial payload. It's a game-changer for us given how far Australia is away from the world. Joining us now is Angus Whitley, reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Angus. You're welcome. Good to be here. Qantas Airline is just about to embark on the new world's longest flight. It's going to be the first 20-hour flight. It's going to be going from New York to Sydney, and they're putting a lot of stock into this. They're going to monitor the pilots. They're going to do brain scans of the pilots. They're going to monitor the few dozen passengers that are going to be on there, food, sleep, activity of these passengers. You are going to be one of these people to do this long-haul flight. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, I'm going to be on the plane. It's really a groundbreaking flight. As you say, it's going to be close to 20 hours, as long as like 19 and a half hours. And no airline has ever done this route without stopping direct from New York to Sydney. So it's a first on that front. But it's also going to be pretty unique. Qantas is running this flight as essentially a laboratory in the skies because in a couple of years, Qantas has plans to start direct commercial services between New York and Sydney and London and Sydney. And these are long, long flights. So this weekend's flight is really a test operation to see how the passengers hold up. And we're going to have about 40 passengers, 10 crew, and we're all going to be subject to various tests just to see if we can help reduce the inevitable fallout at the end of the trip. And that's uh, that's going to be some jet lag. The longest flight that I've ever been on was about 11 hours, and it was rough. I was tired. I was jet lagged after it. My back hurt the whole nine. What are you expecting and what are they trying to to study. I mean, obviously, they're looking to see, you know, comfortability and how long people last mentally and physically. What are they looking for? What are they looking into? They've done some research into this and they realize that at 20 hours, you're pushing into or towards the full circadian cycle of a human. You know, it's just over 24 hours and you need to start paying special attention to the sort of not, not just how the passengers feel, but their emotions and their stress levels. So they're, they're trying to see whether they can sort of shake up the standard routine in-flight service schedule that you get on long flights to see if they can ease the physical and emotional burden on passengers. So what's going to happen is when we leave New York on Friday night, on the 18th of October, we're going to switch immediately to Sydney time. And that means, you know, lights on for six hours if we can stay awake. And we'll be given food to keep us awake, you know, spicy food with herbs and chili. And to see if that has any effect at the end of the flight to making us feel better. And they've got some frequent flyers on the plane that will be subject really to a pretty strict regimen of food, beverages, sleeping and movement. And they're going to see, uh, like for the two weeks following the flights, whether they sort of felt any better about it afterwards. And if so, they'll, they'll incorporate those kind of conclusions and possibly start sort of shaking up the standard routine, which most people, when they get on a long, long haul flight, you get fed, lights go down, and that's it, no matter where you're heading. So is that the best way to adapt to the destination time zone? Possibly not. And that's what this flight is going to find out. That's a totally interesting approach. Get you into Sydney time immediately so that when you're landing, you're already kind of up to speed with it. That's a very interesting way to go. This New York to Sydney flight is going to be 10,066 miles in 19.5 hours. There's going to be about 50 people on this plane, including the crew. The crew themselves have a lot of difficulties with this also. They said that even though in some of these long-haul flights, a typical crew member is only supposed to work about 10 hours, 
sometimes they don't really sleep for about 20, 21 hours themselves. So it's going to be hard for the flight attendants and for the pilots themselves, especially. That's exactly right. It's key not just to get this right for passengers, but for the, the Qantas cabin crew. And they're not actually allowed to be on duty for longer than 20 hours. So the point of this research is to devise the best way to manage fatigue in the cabin crew and in the pilots to see if you know they can reschedule their rest, their routine. When in the flight is it the best time to take a break, for example? So the pilots on this flight are going to be wearing brain scanning headsets the whole trip to see you know, when they're the most alert. They're going to measure melatonin levels by taking urine samples from the pilots just to gauge when you should factor in rest periods if you're going to take on these ultra-long haul travel, these super-long flights, which could breach 20 hours. So it's important for Qantas. They need to get that sorted if they're going to attempt these services commercially in the future in two years' time. Angus, what's the longest flight you've been on so far? I've been on a, a 17-hour flight, and that was from Auckland to Houston, and it's long. You know, it's the, the last few hours always feel quite hard work. And there was a briefing today, which I attended in New York before the flight, and it's clear that research shows with every hour that you add on with a long flight, the stress gets more and the needs of the passengers get greater. So you have to factor in physical comfort, emotional comfort, somewhere to stretch, and some kind of level of socialization is important when you're in a plane for 20 hours. It's the day and night in the sky. So right. it's not been done before. For Qantas, it's critical that it gets it right. Angus Whitley, reporter for Bloomberg News, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. When you go to ebay.com, the Cheetos that you find for sale are often listed for a buy it now price of anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to in the thousands, which is what really makes the story unique. Joining us now is Tova Danovich, journalist and contributor to theoutline.com. Thanks for joining us, Tova. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about Cheetos today, more specifically Cheetos that look like things. And then beyond that, the online marketplace for Cheetos that look like things. Tova, tell us a little bit about the collectible Cheetos market. Basically, when you get a bag of Cheetos, they're all kind of funny shapes. They're made from extruded corn and various other ingredients. So they each come out looking pretty unique. And sometimes people casually between the bag and their mouth stop and look at the (laughs) Cheeto that they're holding. And they're like, wow. This looks like an elephant. This looks like a man walking. This looks like a Sasquatch or a cartoon character. Of course, in this day and age, you can sell your services on TaskRabbit, something like that, sell everything you own on the internet. So people find these Cheetos and they're like, I'm going to sell this on eBay. Let's see what money I can get. When you go to eBay.com, the Cheetos that you find for sale are often listed for a buy it now price of anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to in the thousands, which is what really makes the story unique. (laughs) And that's also the point where people are going, oh my God, what is wrong with people? Obviously, everybody knows. (laughs) The Harambe Cheeto, that one went on eBay. It ended up selling for $100,000. We'll get into that in a little minute because there's some specific things to know about that one. But I know you were mentioning some of the price of these, but what kind of shapes and what are people trying to sell? Uh, There's a fluffy baby penguin. What other ones are, are people trying to sell there? There are so many animals. I think that's probably the most common shape that you find. But then you also get people that are trying to be a little zeitgeisty with their Cheeto marketing. (laughs) You know, you got to get that hook that's with the time. So you'll see 
Fortnite dancers sometimes or, you know, characters from SpongeBob. I feel like probably when the next Star Wars movie comes out again, <laughs> there have to be some Darth Vader's on the horizon. But the more people can kind of integrate pop culture into their Cheeto I guess the more they think it will sell. And maybe they're right. Who knows? And so how did this whole craze get started? From looking through your article, it seemed like there was two main things. One, there was a guy who started an Instagram page for cheese puffs that look like things, something like that. And then mm -hmm. the other was when Frito-Lay actually held a contest for people to send in submissions and you could actually win money at that point. So Andy, who is behind at Cheese Curls of Instagram, kind of started it off on a bit of a whim. Similar story to basically everyone I talked to where he was just eating a Cheeto one day, noticed it looked like something. And I think it was a friend of his or a family member that actually told him, hey, you should start an Instagram for these. <laughs> and he is so good at finding Cheetos that look like things. I, for researching this story, actually tried to go through a bag of Cheetos and find one that looked like anything and had no luck at oh, all. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so it's harder than it looks. I had a little bit more respect for the shaped Cheeto after this. But yeah, his account got really popular up to about 44,000 followers or so at its peak. And it was around that time that other people, I think, got encouraged to share their own Cheetos that looked like things. And Frito-Lay, who owns Cheeto, was like, let's get in on this. Let's do something with this. And so they did a pretty big very successful marketing campaign where if you posted your own Cheetos, submitted it, it had a possibility of going into a Cheetos museum, which they've since done both one in person for a limited time, kind of a pop-up, and then one that was just digital. And the winner got something like $50,000 who had the very best Cheeto, which really pushed the idea that Cheetos equal money right, <laughs> into yeah. the public consciousness. So the last thing, because uh, you spoke to a lot of people who are selling Cheetos, who are the people that are selling them and who, if any, are buying them? And this also kind of leads us back into that Harambe Cheeto thing. So the Harambe Cheeto, as you mentioned earlier, reportedly sold for nearly $100,000. It was on the news everywhere right. because it's a crazy story. And part of the thing that's crazy about it is good on the person selling the Cheeto, but who in their right mind is spending $100,000 on the Cheeto. Nobody yeah. knows. And I wasn't able to get in contact with the seller, but I did find a reporter who mentioned that the seller of the Harambe Cheeto did not actually get the price that was listed. No. Um, and a funny thing I found out about eBay is that when you look at things that have sold in the past, it will give you the price that it was bidded for the winning bid, but that's not necessarily what someone paid. It would kind of be like if I tweeted at Sotheby's, you know, I'm going to pay a billion dollars for this work of art, but I obviously don't have it. And they listed the sold prices a billion dollars. So there's something a little bit odd and disingenuous about it, but it probably doesn't come up too much. So in the case of a lot of these Cheetos, it might say that it sold for $100,000 or $9,000 or even two hundred, dollars But in all likelihood, no one has ever paid that. Tova Danovich, journalist and contributor to TheOutline.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been fun. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.